Thank you. You may be seated. For the New Testament reading, I'm going to, as we have done some in the past, I'm going to recite the New Testament reading today, taking Martin Luther's admonition seriously that Romans is such a book that we need to commit it to memory, that we need to learn it word by word by heart. And so it helps me. I've done this. You've seen this before. But what I didn't realize when I told Claire earlier in the week that I would be doing the memory work and the recitation is I didn't realize how the week was going to go. So we'll see what happens. But if you'll give attention to the words of God from the apostle who says that he is called to be an apostle and set apart for this royal announcement about Jesus Christ. The wrath of God, he starts from Romans 1, 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of the heart, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women... Yes, I know what I'm saying. These are the most popular verses in the Bible. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were filled and inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you will, please pray with me the prayer in your bulletin, page 3, inviting our Lord to shepherd us through these difficult words. As I was saying, it's on page 4. 
Sorry. I'm looking at last service's bulletin, which where it was on page three. Okay. O God, whose Son, Jesus, is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, would you please shepherd us gently, shepherd us with self-introduction. On this Mother's Day, a day replete with insurmountable pressures, a day when all manner of mothers may unwittingly find themselves saddened and disappointed because a mother isn't here or they don't get to be a mother or because they're not properly honored. Lord, there's a lot of pressure on this day. But we pray that you would diffuse the pressure and that you would speak to us and that you would renew us and that your kindness would bring about happy alterations within us. We are eager to receive from you and know that we are not the authors of our best hope. So would you author good hope in us and help us to hear what we're not inclined to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The poet Mary Carr, when she talks about escaping a life of addiction, a life of attachment to created things, her life turning upside down because, as Paul is going to tell us here, every time the order of worship in your life, all people being worshipers of something, whenever that order gets cattywampus, when it gets upside down, when you start to worship things that you ought to be master of, then all sorts of downward spiral starts to happen. Mary Carr experienced this as an alcoholic. And as she started to get well, as acts of grace started to move her in a different direction, one of the ways this happened was through a son. And her son to her one day came in his little Superman outfit, as many little boys probably have, with a cape on a Sunday morning, and he flew into her room. I don't know if he flew, but it makes a better story. And he said, Mom, I think we should go to church. Why? Why on earth would you think that, she said. They were not people who went to church. And he said, because we need to go and see if God is there. I want to go see if God is there. And she said, that was the only answer... I want to go see if God is there. That was the only answer that would have taken me away from my excellent bagel and my fine coffee in the New York Times on that Sunday morning. I wanted to go to church to see if God was there. It's interesting, this little boy with no training had a sense that God was somebody he ought to be looking for. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. He says, in the normal course of being a human, God is someone you ought to be looking for. But he also tells us that knowledge is never just fact-based, but it's always morally informed. That's the first point today. Knowledge of God, or really anything, is never just fact-based, but it is always morally informed. So the apostle can say, after having just told us that the righteousness of God 
is being revealed to the world. There is a way you can be righteous before God and is through the open hands, the empty hands of faith. He now says there's also a revelation of God. There's something that God is making known, and it's called his wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of folks who suppress the truth with their wickedness. The apostle has a fundamental belief about the world, and it says this. Don't you dare believe anybody who says, I don't believe in God. There's no evidence for them. They're in denial. We're in a therapeutic culture. We understand what it is to be in denial. T.S. Eliot has told us that humans cannot bear very much reality. And so we are the kind of people, and maybe you've done this before, you get a bill in the mail. Kids, you don't know what this is? Your day's coming. You get a bill in the mail, and you say, oh, I know what that is. And so you put it aside for later. Because if you don't look at the bill, then it doesn't pertain to you. Right? If you do not open the envelope, then you do not have to pay it. No, but there's something in us that says sometimes, I don't want to know. Hey, man, I really got to tell you something, but you got to promise not to. Nah, I'd rather not know. Please don't tell me. There's certain things we don't want to know. There's certain bills that we don't want to open. And Paul says that same dynamic is going on, has been going on forever, as it pertains to God. There is this dynamic that says, deep in your heart somewhere, I know he's there. In fact, I've seen him because those trees are chatterboxes. Because the blades of grass are verbose. Because birdsong is a symphony orchestra from God. Even Lookout Mountain, which is the strong, silent type, is often communicating Things about the invisible God to us. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his invisible qualities, have been clearly seen. So clearly Paul doesn't know what invisible means. Or does he? His invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what is made. It has always been the case that anybody who was wondering needed only to just walk outside and know that somehow or another we got here. Somehow or another, the spectacularness of this day had to be authored by somebody who knew how to make it. And even in our era where God is being publicly, self-consciously deleted from the pages of our lives, scrubbed from our recognition, rooted out of public discourse and education and medicine and politics, there's still a haunting. Flannery O'Connor said we live in a Christ-haunted South. Well, people live in a God-haunted state. And you need only listen to them talk about things. Listen to a scientist who will tell us that evolution has provided for the eye, which could formerly in its earliest state only see a little bit of light come through it, but now it has developed more fully so that this refraction can create an image on the mind which can help you understand objective reality outside of you that evolution has provided for this process. And without realizing it, they've just made evolution a personalized decision maker. This depersonalized thing... This impersonal 
process, they've personalized it in their speech. Nature has allowed for the mother of the young to put the young kangaroo in her pouch. Nature has provided. They personalize nature. I think it's because there's a haunting. Because there's a sense that behind everything you see, behind everything you marvel at, behind everything that ought to cause gratitude in you and marveling within you, you know there's a personal decision maker, author, creator, involver behind it. The apostle insists that that is the case. That all that we see screams at us. There is no language, says the psalmist, where the voice of God's glory is not heard. So if you can't hear it, that means that you have your ears stuffed with your fingers. You have a conversation sometimes with people, and it will feel like the one on the electric company where the guy says, Hey, you've got a banana in your ear. And the guy says, What? I said, You've got a banana in your ear. What? I said, You've got a banana in your ear. And the man replies, I can't hear you. I've got a banana in my ear. <laughs> Paul would say, We suppress the truth because we put a banana in our ear. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. And so we decide ahead of time we're not going to see it like a bill that has come from the heavens. And of course, part of the reason for that is if there is a God behind all that we see, then we might just be answerable to him. And if you don't know that you can give a good answer to him, then there is every bit of reason to want to deny him. Also, if there is a God who's so much more powerful than you, his will might be stronger than yours. What he wants might actually be what happens, and, well, we don't like that. I want to do it. It's a sign of early childhood development. Me do it. The sign of becoming an independent, autonomous, comic book caveman Me do it. The youngest age, little children want to be autonomous. The apostle says that this leads to foolishness. That knowledge is never just based on what you can see, but it is morally informed. If you can't see God, if you don't believe in him, if you think he isn't involved in the world, then you've probably made a commitment in your heart ahead of time that it can't be true. And he goes on. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He later says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Paul's contention is that every time God goes from being the most important thing to people, then something else will become most important, and that something else will lead to decay, to disintegration, and to degradation. Worshiping God will make you a human because you're made in his image. 
Turning away from God will make you an animal who is only led along by his own nose, who's only drawn by her own desires, who thinks of every encounter as a competition and acts by the law of the jungle. How can I dominate my opponent? How can I get my way over the one who stands in front of me? It's important to realize that at the heart of these kinds of exchanges is believing some kind of lie. There's a story about two little boys who had a dog with them, and a minister walked up to them and said, what are you boys doing? They said, well, we're seeing who can tell the biggest lie. Whoever tells the biggest lie gets to keep the dog. And the minister said, well, that is awful. That is awful. I've never told a lie when I was your age. And one of the little boys said, he gets the dog. (laughs) The apostle is wanting to hold up for just a minute after you've gotten your hair cut, or many of them cut, a mirror so you can look at yourself for a second and even see the back that you can't normally see and say, you know, there's some fundamental deceit in your life. None of us, says C.S. Lewis, have ever told the whole truth, and when we do, even the tone is false. And the apostle is saying, here's what's happening. When you turn away from God, you start to think that you are God, that you author things, you live by deceit, your heart gets dark, your mind gets confused. And then all manner of sin ensues, because you're not answerable to anyone. And that leads to the next point. When the creational intent is ignored, unintended destruction occurs. When creational intent is ignored, unintended destruction occurs. So here's what happens. Paul says, here is an authoritative view of human history. This is a sort of analogy, a description of what happens when people who are allergic to God decide to stay away from him and say, leave me alone, leave me alone. God does. If you tell God, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, if you continue to suppress the bubbling up within you, if you suppress it and suppress it and say, get away from me, leave me alone, if you act like a a child learning to drive a car, and you're going through a treacherous patch and you as a parent, put the hand on the wheel to try to level things out, and the kid slapped your hand away. I know how to do this. I'm 15. 15. I know everything at this point. And you know as a parent, well, your car only veers to the left. The steering wheel doesn't actually work. And the car only veers left. If you don't get my help, you're going to go off the cliff. And people say, stop it. Leave me alone. I don't want you to. And eventually God says, okay. And watches people go off the cliff. And that's what Paul says. Therefore, God gave them over. Three times he says it. He says that when people said, they walked outside and they said, holy cow, look at that mountain range. I am awesome. 
That was the wrong response. Let us worship the mountain. Let us make a figurine of the mountain that we can carry in our hands and let us worship it. Look at that sun that gives light to the earth and warmth and heat. Let us make a god of the sun. Whenever that happens, it's like saying, God, get away from me. And so God says, here, I'll give you over. You don't want me? You don't want my involvement? I'll give you over to those desires. Let's see what happens. And so he gives them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. He gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men did the same. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The apostle has this sense that you learn a great deal about God from creation. You know that he bases a whole lot of stuff about his thinking in the New Testament on the creation story. So the reason I think it's clear that Paul would, for instance, say that a part of God's judgment is people going nuts with their sexuality, inventing things, making up stuff, being clever, smarter than God. The reason that people, the reason he brings this up is because it's the, one of the most obvious defections from the God, way God made stuff. That's why he uses the words unnatural. Women exchange their natural desires for unnatural ones. Men exchange unnatural, unnatural for unnatural. He's using natural and unnatural. The way God made stuff, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You know, we've heard the... Paul would not like that probably, but he would agree with the sentiment. Because it's important to him and instructive to him one's biology. Because we are made in the image of of a God who decided we'd be made this way. We did not make ourselves. We are not the result of impersonal forces. We do not decide what we are. Our identity is conferred on us. Now, if it's not clear, this is revolutionary teaching compared to what you're hearing in your world at this moment. An increasing number of Christians don't believe any of what I'm saying or about to say. Increasing number of Christians. But the scriptures everywhere, without hint of defecting from the teaching, suggest that God made men to marry women, and that sexual relationships should happen within that relationship alone. And if you look at the creation story even, you see this complementarity in the creation. That God made the sky and the land. He made the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. He made male and he made female. In the image of God, he made them. God made a universe where things fit together. And when humans start to try to decide what they're doing, they ignore all of that. And then things start to devolve into chaos. It's interesting that I shall not be quoting from Eric Metaxas or 
focus on the family, but from my favorite commentator who is, happens to be lesbian and atheist and liberal, Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia says, It is interesting to me to note in my studies of civilizations that in almost every civilization that declines, that starts to get to its latest stages of civilization before it goes away, you notice some interesting things. You notice that there is a movement away from sexual differentiation to androgyny. In Hellenism, Greek stuff, you see early on, you see statues like me, muscly, virile, manly. And then, okay. then you eventually, thank you for the laughter, then as you get to late stages, you start to see a collapse and you start to see wet noodly looking men. A convergence of man and woman into one thing. She says you start to see an increase of homosexuality, an increase of gendered games, an increase of sexual inventiveness that happens at the end of civilizations. That's what she says. She says it happens over and over and over again. It's verifiable. And it's so interesting that Paul would use that as an example because that's what happens when people are left to their own devices when they stop saying, hey, we're the image of God. So we're answerable to him and we reflect him and they start to say, I am God. They start to adopt, as it were, cat theology instead of dog theology. You've heard this? Dogs look at their lives. They say, oh my gosh. He feeds me, he pets me, shelters me, takes care of me, takes me to the vet. He must be God. Cats, the one part of creation that God did not say was good about. Cats say, they feed me, they shelter me, they take me to the vet. They try to pet me if if I get near enough to them. I must be God. That's why you feel an inherent wickedness from a cat. Because it... Okay, it's, a, it's kind of a joke, but it's mostly not. But that's the thing. Paul's saying that's what happens. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to recognize this world is magnificent. Look how big it is. Look how magnificent our God is. He deserves everything from me. He he's, should be the most important thing in my life. I should lean on him. I should try to find out from him, what am I for? How should I live? How should I treat other people? When I meet someone... When I've got God in the picture, I say, oh, there's the image of God. I can be deferential. I can say, oh, my goodness, I should treat them with special honor and respect, no matter if they're handsome or ugly or tall or short or disabled, no matter what color their skin is, that's the image of God. Scrub out God. The law of the jungle. I decide what's right. I decide how to use my body. The cosmos shrinks down to the size of me. That's what the best people can think of is my identity is whether I'm I'm, I'm pansexual. They make up stuff that isn't a thing. They reduce their life down to just their body. They stop thinking about elevated things of God and how the story they're in and they start to think, I have to obey my strong desires within me. Because I am God. And Paul would say, 
that's not going to get the wrath of God. That is a demonstration of the wrath of God. Do you get that? He's saying we're already living with the wrath of God in a way that one of the worst things God can do is you say, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. And he says, okay then. And that's what we're seeing. That's what you see so much. And it's a, it's a, it's a picture, of course. It's a picture of what's supposed to be in the end. Paul said he has this picture. The Jews always had it. The Christians always had it. One day, the God who decides, the God who's there like a bill waiting for you, whether you think of him or not, he's going to think of you. And your life's going to be answerable to him, says Paul. And what we're seeing now is just a foretaste, the, the, the disillusionment, the disenchantment, the, the deep troubledness of people. Authoring their own lives is not making them better. It's not making them happier. You know, it's an interesting thing to me to witness when you see a proliferation of sexual violence, for instance, on campuses, apparently. And I, I have no reason to believe that's not true. Or an increase of sexual abuse and things. And so there's a move. Let us figure out how can the NFL not beat up women. It's a great idea. Don't beat up women. But what no one seems to do the math about is what do you expect? I said that, yeah. If you tell people that they're not the image of God, that they're just animals, products of biological forces meant to act on whatever is going on within them, what else are they going to do but act like animals? And what happens in the jungle? The larger thing attacks and does whatever he wants to the smaller thing. So it seems like if you want to protect people from abuse, you might ought to teach people that they are answerable to God and that they're made in his image. So the strong people ought to look at weak people and say, oh, I owe them deference. I could never harm them. I could never use their body for my pleasure because they do not belong to me. They belong to him. My desires are to be bridled. They're to be on a leash and yanked back sometimes. I must not obey them if they are out of accord with what the one who made me has said for me. Bill Nye is a twit. And he... Okay, well... My seminary professor always used to call people twits. I've never done it publicly, so I just did. But I saw an episode from one of his shows that I can't endorse or describe. But the whole gross, inappropriate, ridiculous thing was someone suggesting that all sexual rules, differentiation between men and women, it's all a farce. It's nothing anymore. And Bill Nye's dancing and clapping awkwardly like I would be doing if I were clapping at that. And at the end, he says, that's exactly the right message. Full of good cheer. Cheering them on, talking about nonsense. Ignoring what God has made right before their eyes. And Paul says, this is what's the most dangerous thing. They not only know, they know, people know in their hearts that God's righteous decree says, if you practice ungodliness, you deserve death. But they not only keep on practicing it, but they actually approve of others. Why do you approve of others who are doing wrong things, who are defying God? You do it because you've got to justify yourself. That's what always happens. 
Why would you make your life about advocating gay marriage, for instance, or having abortions, for instance? Why would you make your whole life about something like that? About, why would you make your life about sexual expression unless you needed it to be true and wanted other people to adopt it because you hoped so badly that you weren't answerable to God for this wickedness that you're perpetrating on other people? So you hear this, if you're in Rome or maybe on Lookout Mountain, you're hearing this and there's a party, it's like, yeah, get them. That's right. Somebody had to say it. But you know what's interesting is that Paul probably predicted that Jews would be hearing all this. None of this stuff that that Paul's talking about would have been common in Judaism. Jews always denounced all this stuff, so it's, there was never any evidence of rampant sexual weirdness in Jewish communities because they always knew it was wrong. And so they could have been like we might be doing, saying, yeah, ha, get them. And then, God, and then Paul says this at the end. This is what we close with. You, therefore, have no excuse. You have passed judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, do you think, since you're doing the same things, that you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Not realizing that his kindness, his tolerance, his patience leads you toward repentance. The apostle has tricked us. He has lured us in, telling us what's wrong, telling us the wrath of God's being revealed on this wrongness, letting us nod along. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. And then he said, but don't nod along because actually we all do the same thing. They might present in different ways, but we all have the same disease of preferring created things to the creator. It's something we always have to turn away from. I went to a funeral this week of a great man named Nolan Daniel. Some of you know him. Maddie's father, if y'all went to Fairland. And Cecil Gravett, who is our neighbor, and it was a preacher, does a mean Willie Nelson impersonation, and he tells a good story. He was telling about his friend, Nolan, that he grew up with. And he said, Nolan and I, well, sometimes after dark, Nolan might just uh, sneak out the house, you know, to meet up with his friends, maybe to just, just to sit and visit for a while. That's all they would do. That's not all they would do, apparently. And Nolan would sometimes come back in. And as he was climbing in the window, he would often in another room in the house for a mother who did not know he was even gone. He would hear her, Cecil said, beseeching the Lord on his behalf. Calling out the names of her children, wrestling with God that he would show his kindness to them. That he would show his salvation to them. That he would put his hooks in them. That he would alter them. That he would rescue them from themselves. And when Nolan would hear her praying so earnestly, like Augustine heard his mother 
watering the earth with the tears of her earnest prayers for his deliverance from his own sexual addictions. No one said, when I heard her pray like that, I always felt like a dog. I felt like a dog. Because that's what happens when you see such kindness in the face of your rottenness. You might feel like a dog. But the apostle would say, feeling like a dog's a good thing. Because dogs realize that they're mastered. Dogs realize that they're dependent on another for their life and their livelihood. Dogs, unlike cats, will come back to you. And the Apostle Paul is telling you all of this so that you realize that God is holding up a picture of kindness. He's showing you how ugly we can become so that we run toward his kindness, which leads us to repentance. He don't want you to feel like a dog. He just wants you to have the gratitude of a well-loved dog who knows that you do not belong to yourself, but you belong to Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of your rebellions and invites you to be clothed in his righteousness, to come to the God who invites you through his kindness to repentance. Keep coming to him. It's worth it. Amen.